Good morning to you all. I'm glad that you're here this morning to see so many here on a Friday morning is really encouraging, really uplifting. You know, for, for people like you to come on a Friday when you could be doing something else, <clears throat> to me is a good thing, is a great thing. There's a lot of things that we as Christians sometimes think that we can be doing <clears throat> to kind of impress maybe others or maybe even ourselves that we're followers of Jesus, or at least we're religious in some way. And uh, when we think about it, however, <clears throat> us Christians actually make statements. We do it by what we show up for. We come to a service on a Friday and making a statement about a belief in Jesus that he died on a cross on a Friday and so we come and acknowledge it, we celebrate it and are here on a Friday. You could be doing something else. You could go whatever else you might be doing on a Friday, maybe work of course, but you could be doing other things. And Christians a lot of times think that just busyness uh, describes that we are faithful to Jesus. Of course, there's things we should definitely be doing. But what about us just standing on the facts and saying, this is what I believe and I'm standing on it. I believe it and I want to be faithful to it. And that's what actually you here today are doing you're making a stand that Jesus died on a Friday for your sins. If you happen to be here and don't believe that just yet, or are thinking it over, I hope by the end of the service, you will come to accept Jesus as Lord. You will be drawn by faith through him and accept him as Lord. So thank you for coming. I'm glad you're here on a Friday. <clears throat> there was a... There is... Uh, a president of a theological seminary, Albert Moeller, the Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, he wrote an article, and in that article, he, he headed the article by saying, don't just do something, stand there. Don't we usually know, reverse it? He reversed it. Generally, we say, don't just stand there, do something. He reversed it in that article to make the point that Christians actually do make a stand. And in our church, and in every church that I know of, that we, we actually do that. We have a confession of faith. The Baptists do the same. They have a confession, a confessional, and they make a stand. Coming on a Friday, that's exactly what we're doing. We are making a stand that Jesus actually came to this earth, the Son of God. He actually came and died on a cruel cross, a Roman cross, for our sins. And we're here celebrating it. And I'm glad to see this church so full for the second time to do this. It's great that you're here. But why do we call this Friday Good Friday? I worked as a railroader. I was worked for the BNSF, which stands for Burlington Northern Santa Fe Railway. It's an American railway that comes into Canada. International shipping is done on it. 
And as a railroader, you know that railroaders, railroads, they are always running. It doesn't matter the day of the week or holidays, except for usually Christmas, they'll give you a time off. So I worked a lot of Fridays, good Fridays, that is. I didn't really like it, but that's the way it worked. <clears throat> I did have other times where I didn't. But it did give me a great opportunity on this Friday with the crew that I'd be with to actually ask them the question. I'd say to them, fellas, why is this in a so-called Christian country, why is this, called, this day called Good Friday when an innocent man was executed on a Roman cross? Innocent man executed on a Roman cross. Why do we call that good? You know, there were those that did know the answer, but there were those who didn't. And then I had the great opportunity to explain briefly, mind you, because we had to go to work, but briefly <clears throat> what this day meant. And I'm thankful that today I can do it with a crowd like you. Really great that you're here. Let's turn to what Pastor Matt has already given to us and read it again. John 19, 28 to 30 is this way. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, To fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Only three verses Matt gave me. What was he thinking? You know, a novice like me, going to have to speak for half an hour on three verses. But I already did it, so he was right. It worked. <laughs> In fact, I went a little over time, he says, so we'll keep it shorter. <laughs> the first, this is the second time Jesus was offered sour wine. <clears throat> the first time when he was offered it was mixed with myrrh. You can read about it in Matthew. There it's referred to as gall. In Mark it's referred to as mixed with myrrh. This was actually a sedative. It was a painkiller. It was designed to lessen the agony. And if you know the scriptures, Jesus refused that drink. He was there to bear our sins and all the pain. He wasn't there to reduce it. The second drink that he did take didn't redu reduce it, but it did something else. He did it on purpose. If you'll read uh, in Psalms, 20, uh, Psalms 69, 21, you will see that Jesus did this to fulfill Scripture. He did it deliberately. It says there in Psalms, which was written... It's got to be close to a thousand years before this happened. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Jesus knew the jar was there. Jesus knew this passage was there, and he had one more thing to do before he died to fulfill Scripture, to be obedient to his Father. 
And so he said, knowing he would be offered the drink, I thirst. That's what it says in that passage to finish, to fulfill scripture, I thirst. You notice the beginning? Jesus, knowing that all was finished, said, to fulfill scripture, I thirst. And so the soldiers, they didn't know that they were fulfilling scripture. They put a sponge on a stick and they dipped it into the bowl, into the jar, it says, and passed it up to him and he took it and then he died. That's how it's described. Jesus fulfilled the scripture. Now, we know that when he fulfilled this, this scripture, that it actually had been also predicted even before then when uh, Joseph was approached by a angel in a dream and said to Joseph, uh, that scripture, I think I went a little too fast here. That scripture is, yes, in Matthew 1.21. I'm running ahead of myself. In Matthew 1.21, we'll see that it says what, uh, the, what was stated to Joseph she will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. You'll notice what the angels don't say. The, don't, the angels don't say that there's a possibility that he will save his people from their sins, or if it all works out, it'll, he'll save his people from their sins. No, he says, the angel says, it will save his people from their sins. And so when... When we come now to uh, what was described here in Psalms, in uh, Psalms 69, 29, and we see that that part was actually fulfilled and Jesus did it deliberately. You know, his, his earthly father didn't have a clue probably on exactly how Jesus was going to accomplish this. How was he, when he held the baby for the first time, this little boy in his arms, he's wondering, how is this little boy going to grow up and actually accomplish what that, uh, what that angel told me? How is this possible? And yet, when, it's, when we see the quote out of Psalms and Jesus making sure that he's fulfilling all scripture, Joseph could have had, and probably did, without him knowing it, had the confidence that Jesus was going to actually accomplish everything that was stated by, by the words called the Messiah, Messiah from the Old Testament. The first thing that Jesus did accomplish, actually when we take a look at the word finished, in the Greek, it's tetelestia. Now, I was going to run it by the pastor and, and he said I had it right in the first service that I pronounced it right. Tetelestia in the English also includes complete, accomplished. It's completed or it's, it's accomplished. So we can use those words interchangeably. Well, how did he actually do this in life? The first thing that Jesus did, and it was real soon here before his death, 
In John chapter 17, we read about it. In John chapter 17, verse 4, this is a lengthy prayer that Jesus prayed on just before uh, or sometime around the time when he had the Last Supper with his disciples. There was a prayer. Before the time he went up to the uh, Mount of Olives, crossed the Kidron Valley with his disciples, and he would be there betrayed. There is a prayer that he prayed, and it's a lengthy one in, in John chapter 17. In verse 4, it states, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. The very first thing that Jesus was interested, was focused on doing, was to be so obedient to the Father that it brought glory to God the Father. That's what he mentioned first. Now, we think on a good Friday especially that Jesus came to die for our sins. That's the first thing that he came to do. Well, it is extremely important for us to know that that is true. But Jesus makes sure that he lets God the Father know that he accomplished what he was called to do to bring, bring glory to the Father. That he wanted to make sure was, was done. That God himself acknowledged it as well, but Jesus, in his human body, wanted to say that. It's a good thing for us to recognize that there are some things that we need to actually make a stand on. And Jesus made that stand. I, he's saying that he came to earth to glorify God. But then, the way he did it, of course, it says the work. The work the Father gave him to do. That's how he did it. And that's what we're going to look at. How did Jesus bring glory to God while he lived? Further on in that prayer, in John chapter 17, in verse 8, we find out, what Jesus says there, he says, I have given them the words you gave me and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. Now that they here are his disciples, his, the 12 for sure, but even broader, those that did believe him. And he's saying that he brought them to that point that they actually believed he was sent by God the Father. Well, where did he actually do this? How do we know that he did this? He says it in his prayer, but where did he actually do this? There was a time when Jesus, with his disciples, during his three-year ministry, he took his disciples from Capernaum. Now, Capernaum was a city on the north end of Sea of Galilee. It was kind of like his home base. It was the place where Peter lived. His mother-in-law lived there. He healed his, his own mother-in-law in that place, if you remember. Now, Jesus uh, didn't grow up there, but that's where he kind of made his home base. So his disciples were there at one time, and he decided to take them for a walk. Well, what a walk. He took them from Capernaum to Caesarea Philippi. Now, Caesarea Philippi is to the north of Capernaum. It's at least a three-day walk. I've driven it by bus, and it's all uphill. There's a lot of uphill climbs. It would have taken them a while to get there. But Jesus was 
never did things that were haphazard. There was a purpose here. Now, of course, the purpose was, one thing was, that the villages around Caesarea Philippi, he wanted to make sure they heard about the gospel, about the kingdom of God, that he himself, Jesus himself, would deliver it. But he also went there to make sure that the disciples got something and to see if they got it. That what he prayed at the end here in, of his life, that they, that he made, that they did get it, that who he was, they understood and received it and got it, that they would, they would, they would get it there because of the questions he asked. Now, I have some. There it is. Caesarea Philippi at that time looked similar to this. Now that's a artist sketch who who thinks that's what it looked like. There were three temples or three gods that were worshipped there. There may have been more, but there were three at least. The god Pan, Augustus Caesar, Caesar's was worshipped, and Zeus. Caesar's palace was right, or Caesar's worship place was right there. Right behind it, you'll see kind of like a hole. The god Pan was worshipped there. Pan was this figure that you might have seen of a man who had goat's legs and horns. They worshipped in caves because they liked it rustic and natural. And then Zeus, I think, is that one. That is at the foot of, uh, Mart, uh, of, the, mount, of the mount. And what it looks like now is quite different. You'll see that's what all those places are gone. And the etching, etchings and carvings in the side of the mountain in the very rock are still quite visible there. But when Jesus was and his disciples were there, these powerful images of these temples must have had an effect. It certainly had an effect on people there because there had to have been people that went there to worship. And Jesus takes them to this place to ask them two questions. And the two questions are recorded in Matthew 16, 13 to 17. And there he says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Question number one. And they said, they answered, Well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Four, four different individuals. Well, John the Baptist hadn't died that long, long ago. He had been killed by Herod. But the other four had been long since gone, long died. It's interesting that when Jesus brought them to a place where foreign gods, where pagan gods were worshipped, he asked them this question, who do you say I am? And none of them say anything like, well, maybe some people say, some people say you're from Zeus. None of them said that. All of them referred to the scriptures. They referred to people they knew. That as far as they were concerned, and which is true, all those people existed. All those people proclaimed the Messiah. And, and John the Baptist proclaimed Jesus. The others, like, uh, like Elijah or Jeremiah or the prophets, they didn't know him by the name Jesus. They knew him by the Messiah. 
And these are the ones they refer to, his disciples refer to him. So Jesus figures, I didn't, no, he doesn't figure, he had this figured out. He asked them the next question, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, being the spokesman, because he answered for them all, gives this fantastic answer. He says, you are the Christ, the Son of God, the Son of the living God. Jesus is very, very pleased with this answer because of his response. He says, and Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So we see that in Jesus' prayer, in John chapter 17, 8, where he says, they have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Here's the evidence. They did get it. It was finished. It was accomplished. That's what Jesus did in his three-year ministry, is to accomplish, finish things in life. And his disciples got it up to that point. They had yet not experienced his death, which would be another step of faith that they would accomplish, that Jesus would make sure by the Spirit would accomplish. <clears throat> the other thing is that there's two that I was going to mention, and only two because otherwise there's a whole lot we could bring up. And I would spend way too much time here and Pastor Matt would get a little nervous. The other, the other thing was Martha. Martha, one day, you know, Jesus had some friends. Lazarus was a friend and the two sisters, his two sisters, Martha and, uh, Martha and Mary were his, the sisters. Now, Jesus deliberately had hung around Jericho a little too long until Lazarus died. And then he showed up four, four days later. He did this deliberately because he wanted to bring them along and understand who he was. Nobody can, unless they are God, can really bring somebody up from the grave. But this hadn't happened yet. And so when he comes up to Martha, he says this. Jesus said to her, there's a little discussion between them. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again at the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to him, to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And he asks her a question. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. She doesn't just say, yes, Lord. She says, yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. You'll see how that also answers the prayer that Jesus put up, that they would get it. They would understand who he was. He accomplished it. He finished it. She got it. That's an incredible statement when I think of it from both the disciples and from, uh, from Martha of what they stated. They came to a point in their life which we have come after the cross, reading the scriptures, what Jesus accomplished. They believed. They believed he came from, that he came from God. 
and held to it. Now you'll notice, of course, he mentions the resurrection. And she knew there'd be a resurrection. Yet they had yet to experience this, as I say. And so that would be something further that they, they would get to know. Of course, when we think of this, what about us? I'm talking about what happened during Jesus' life with the disciples, with Martha, with, uh, with probably others, how he finished works in their life. What about us? Well, let's turn to Isaiah 53, 5. Now you would think, well, he's turning to an Old Testament. He should be turning to a New Testament passage if it's going to refer to us. But let's read it. But he was wounded for our transgressions, sins. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. You will notice the tense that this is written. In fact, most of the tense of Isaiah 53 is written in the past tense. Was is mentioned here three times. Was wounded. Was crushed. Where's the other one? Was chastised. Isaiah is saying that it's in the past. Yet Jesus had yet not come and done this. Isaiah lived 700 years, about 700 years before, before Christ actually accomplished dying on the cross for our sins. And yet he's saying was wounded. What is this about? He's making, God is making sure that we understand from eternity past, God had determined that Jesus was going to come on the cross and you can consider it a done deal. That's what he wants us to understand. That's why we read it earlier as well. And a lot of times we read it and we go right over the, pla the, the fact that this is written a was. This is a past tense that Isaiah writes it. It could have been like Isaiah saying to his people that were there, Jesus died for your sins. Isaiah didn't know Jesus by that name. Isaiah only knew that it was a Messiah. And the people listening to him would have wondered, what are you talking about? Because it had to be fulfilled as well, just like the cup, it had to be fulfilled in time, in space, in history. The fact that God actually was going to accomplish something and it was going to be done. It's for us. Now Paul, of course, goes further and he makes sure we get the point. If you read in Romans 8, 31 and 32, he says, if God is for us, actually he's saying, since God is for us, you can, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how all, how will he also with him give us, how will he not also with him give us graciously all things? The all things here are being called by God. Our sins being forgiven. Everlasting life with Jesus. Paul's making sure that we get it as well. That there's something that has to be completed, received by us. 
He goes further. Where am I here? Yeah, he goes further in verse 38 and 39. He says, and there's a whole, bu- whole bunch of nor this, nor that, nor that, and they don't sound great. And I want you to think about difficulties in your life. Everybody has difficulties, varying degrees. Some of you may have some serious difficulties that you've had in your life. Think of them. Add them in here. It says here, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What Jesus did on the cross... He completed. He did it, and the power of God made sure that it would be accomplished. He finished it. Praise his holy name. Why don't we say a prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, we are grateful that we can come here on a, Saturday, on a Friday and remember that you died for our sins on a Friday, a special Friday to us. Make us to know your ways, O Lord. Teach us your paths. Lead us in your truth and teach us. For you are the God of our salvation. For you we wait all day long. For your namesake, O Lord, pardon our guilt, for it is great. I do thank you, Lord, that we can be at this time here and acknowledge all that you've done. In Jesus' precious name, amen.